As we uh, look today um, again in uh, the category of Scripture, as we go through in all nine major sections of Scripture in 2012, and we're looking again at another letter written by someone other than the Apostle Paul. Uh, this today we're going to look at 1 Peter and uh, chapter 2, chapter 3, mostly chapter 3. Uh, if you have your, your Bible with you, or you've got your U version uh, on the phone or, or tablet, whatever it may be, be prepared to follow along with me. But before we get into digging into the passage, I just want to give you a little reminder this morning about uh, one of the important things when it comes to reading Scripture. A very important reminder about the importance of context when we're looking at Scripture. Context. Um, context is a, is a big deal. Just ask politicians. When they speak, when they, when they have speeches, when they, when they make off-the-cuff comments, and then those are edited. I mean, if you don't think context is a big deal, then just think about the last uh, couple of weeks, about 47%. Does that have any, does context help with that? Or about, you didn't build that? What's the context of those statements? Because it makes a difference in what they mean. So there's a really a crucial thing about us understanding context in our conversations and in what we say, but, it's, but also in reading something. And especially it's important in Scripture. And three kind of factors I want to give you uh, about context reminders this morning. First of all, there's the, the textual, or you could, instead of saying textual, you could say the immediate context. That is, when you're looking at a passage of Scripture, when you're looking at a verse or two or three or a paragraph and you do need to remember that the original writers didn't write in verses and chapters they were just writing letters or writing his history down we put those verses and chapters in there to help us find things for reference sake when you're looking at a passage of scripture when you're looking at, at a section there the immediate context what what comes before what you're looking at what's already been said and leading up to this and then what comes after that? Both of those things are important. And when you're looking at all of that together, what's the main topic that's being discussed? It's being, what's the issue that's being addressed? What's the question or questions that are being answered? That immediate context is really important. Instead of just drawing that one sentence or one verse out on its own, what came before that? What comes after it? There's also the historical context, and there's a whole lot that can go into that. It's the time when this was written. What was, the, what was going on in the world when this is written? What, what was the place where it was written from? Or maybe if it's a letter like this, who was it written to? And a lot of you, if you have a study Bible, a lot of them are going to give you some important brief historical uh, remarks before you begin reading a book, or maybe in the study notes below. What was the time, the place, the setting? What, what was going on historically when this was written? It's really important because the world in which this was written is not the same as the world today. And it's important to understand what that original context was. And closely related to the historical is the cultural context. What was the culture like to which, uh, in, in which this... This book, whether it's a letter or a historical mark or the, the Gospels or whatever it might be, what was the historical and cultural context going on? And to understand some of the cultural norms and practices 
and what was going on then, and then think about the differences that there are now. All of that's very important for us to get an accurate understanding of Scripture so that it applies to our lives today, and it makes sense, and so that we don't abuse the Scripture and make it mean something that God has not intended it to mean or speak into our lives. So when you think about that context in, in the background today, I want to give you a little bit before we get into 1 Peter chapter 3. There's, there's a, a, a couple of verses in the middle of chapter 2. Chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. And, and in these verses, there's kind of the central theme of the letter. It's kind of a hinge point in the letter. Uh, in the first part of, of, the, of this letter, Peter has been writing to these Christians. Uh, Christians who, uh, who were being persecuted and suffering under the Roman dominance of their day. And he's writing to them about who they are in Jesus Christ. And then after these verses, he begins to describe to them how they're supposed to live out who they are in practical ways. Living out in their relationships with the people around them in the church and outside of it. So with that in mind, look at verse, uh, 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12, where he says this. Dear friends, I warn you, as temporary residents and foreigners, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, and then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior, and they will give honor to God when He judges the world. So he's saying, listen, recognize this. Because of who you are in Christ, where you live, that's a temporary residence. You have a permanent residence with God in eternity. And just recognize that and recognize that because of that, then it's very important, though, how you live today and how you live now and how that influences and speaks to the people and the world around you who do not share the same hope that you have. So... That's kind of the, the immediate context. And I would, I would throw in the beginning of, of verse 13. He says this, For the Lord's sake, respect all human authority. And then he begins to talk about these different relationships that the people he's writing to would have to deal with authority. They have to, some of them were slaves, servants and slaves, and they had to deal with the authority of their masters. And you say, well, there shouldn't be any slaves. We agree. But this is a long time ago. And the reality was some of these people were slaves and servants. And just because we don't like that doesn't mean that wasn't the way they had to live. He, talks, he begins to talk about government authorities and, and the, the need to respect and honor them and, and pray for them. He talks about, moves it into the passage we're going to talk about, talks about husbands and wives. And he uses words, we'll get to them in a minute, like authority of the husband. You know, I don't like that. I don't like that. That's not... Remember the context. Can you stay with me on that, okay? Don't shut me out already, ladies, okay? That immediate context, the historical context, persecution of all kinds, verbal, physical, all kinds of things like that, both individual and on the church, Roman dominance. You know, in fact, a few years after writing this letter, Peter would be crucified in Rome under the emperor Nero's persecution. So with all that in mind, let's look here at, at an important passage of Scripture beginning at uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. 
In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. And then, even if some refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about the outward beauty of fancy hairstyles, expensive jewelry, or beautiful clothes. You should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is so precious to God. This is how the holy women of old made themselves beautiful. They trusted God and accepted the authority of their husbands. For instance, Sarah obeyed her husband Abraham and called him her master. You are her daughters when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should, so your prayers will not be hindered. Okay, context. Context. Cultural context. Listen, in this day and age in which Peter wrote this letter, both within the Jewish society and when Greek society, Roman society, spread it out far and wide, in that world, in that day, women did not have the implicit authority that men had. Okay, can you just accept that? It's not, I'm not talking about now. Okay? I'm talking about 2,000 years ago. Okay? Women did not have implicit authority in their households or in society. And when Peter refers to, to the wives being weaker, we, we do know and, and should accept. It's not always true, but it's typically true physically. Okay? Typically true that men... Husbands are stronger than their wives physically. Some of you say, well, I'd like to come up there and arm wrestle my husband right now, and I'll show you something. Not necessary. Let's, let's just say typically. Maybe you're stronger, okay? You've been working out, and, and that's good. <laughs> typically weaker in, in terms of physical strength. But definitely in cultural, social status in the world that Peter was writing in. They didn't have the influence, they didn't have the power, they didn't have the leverage that men had. Verse 7, when you look in this passage, that's why it makes verse 7 a revolutionary verse. I want you to, I want you to recognize this, and you say, well, it's, it, says, it says, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Okay, that may not have been revolutionary. Treat her with understanding as you live together. That, that was important, maybe not revolutionary. But when he says this, she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. To ever say in that day, in that age, that a woman was on equal footing with a man, that's revolutionary. And so Peter is saying something here that's important in the kingdom of God. As the apostle Paul, his friend, and sometimes... Sometimes antagonists said, in Christ there is no male or female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. Equal partners in the grace of God. That would be revolutionary when Peter was writing that. And that's something that we must take out of this. And if husbands want to take these verses and somehow use them in an abusive way, they're totally missing out on the context and on the meaning of the words honor 
and understanding and equal partnership. There's also these words in here, these verses that sometimes we can get hung up on. In fact, in the church, historically, we have gotten hung up on verses like this, where these things like hair and clothes and jewelry are mentioned, and especially in regards to, to women. We need to understand clearly that this is not some kind of new rule, some sort of legalistic legislative ban on these things. That's not Peter's intent. What he's doing here is giving these ladies a reminder that what's more important than your outward beauty and your accessories. He didn't say they were evil. He didn't say don't, don't use them at all. He said, do you recognize though what's more important than your physical beauty and attraction? It's demonstrating the Spirit of God in your life. And in particular, if you read the context, when you have an unbelieving husband. Let him see the beauty of the Spirit of God in you. The role of husbands and wives. When we understand what God's wanting us to hear from this passage, we've got to keep in mind the context. And, and when I think about this, there's a, a couple of things that I, that I want to kind of bring out and, and kind of illustrate misunderstanding and misapplication, if that's a word, of, of the truth that's here, of the principles that are here. Um, a, couple, a couple of things come, come to mind for me as, as I was thinking about this this week. I was uh, sitting in the library when I was uh, in seminary in Kansas City working on my master's one day. And I was sitting across from a, a guy that, that I had known since my freshman year in college. Um, we were friends, not super close friends, but, but friends. And um, as, uh, as I was often prone to do in, uh, in the library, I was looking for distraction. Um, I was looking for something to think of besides this book was in front of me that I was having to read each paragraph three times to understand what it was saying. And this guy looks across at me and, and he says, Hey, uh, Jeffrey, um, have you broken Julie's spirit yet? I was like, uh, what? Have you, have you broken her spirit? And I said, uh, no, I don't think so. We'd been married for about two years at the time. Uh, he said, well, you know, it had to be done. And I, I'm just looking at him like, what are you talking about? And he said... I had to do it last Sunday afternoon. I'm not going to use his wife's name, just Nazarene world's a small world, I'm not going to use his name. I had to do it. I held her down for four hours. Had to break her will. And then he segued into something spiritually good about that. And, uh, but he said, you know, it worked and, and, and we're good now. And I just sat there speechless for a little bit and then I said, Man, I, I don't think I'm ever going to break Julie's spirit. <laughs> now, on this physically stronger thing, yeah, I think, I think I possibly could hold her down for quite a long time. But I can guarantee you, whenever I let her up, her spirit, <laughs> her spirit would not be broken. And 25 years later, I can say the same thing. It just, that, 
It's not going to work. And that is not, that is not what the Scripture is talking about when it talks about being a husband and being over your household and having authority in your house. That's, that's not it, guys. Please do not do that at home, okay? Don't do that. Break, no, we're not trying to break anybody's spirit. We're trying to lift them up, build them up, strengthen them in the Spirit of God. So that's not at all what the picture of marriage ought to be like. There's a positive thing about the picture of marriage that, that, that just hit me again this week. I, um, late at night, I just tend to flip channels a lot. And um, I was, if I go by and I see a movie that's on that I, that I know, I usually stop and watch a, a segment of it. And I was flipping through the channels, and the movie Shadowlands was on. Maybe you don't know it. I, I'm thinking it was, it, it may be from the late 80s. Uh, that's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess. It's the, it's the story of C.S. Lewis, one of, the, one of the great Christian authors and teachers who's had a lot of influence on, on people for, for many decades. It's the story of, of his marriage. He got married late in life. Uh, he was British and a you know, professor at Oxford, Cambridge, I believe. And um, he got married late in life to an American woman who was divorced and had a young son. And um, in the time of, the, I, I think just after they were married, it was discovered that she had a real aggressive form of cancer. And the movie's really just about their, their love story together and um, the suffering and pain that, that she went through and that he and her son and others went through with her. And there's just some, if you haven't seen that movie, if you're married and haven't seen that movie, even if you're not, man, I'd, I'd recommend that. There's a, uh, a point at the end when, when she knows that uh, she's dying and she's telling her husband, C.S. Lewis, who she called Jack, to, uh, to let her go. And um, I, I couldn't show a clip to you today because if you're like me and you cry when other people cry, I, I'd be a mess and a lot of you would be a mess if I showed a clip of that. And just the, the power of self-giving love between a husband and wife was illustrated so powerfully in that. And, and the, the grieving at the end, too, um, is so real and honest. Um, and they're, they're, I mean, near the end of the movie, when, uh, when he weeps over the loss of his wife, is, uh, I can't watch it without being a mess myself. And I think the picture that, that Peter was trying to convey here is that you do everything that you can in the power of God to show each other as husband and wife the Spirit of God within you. And you seek to honor and bless and help and encourage as equal partners in the grace of God. Moving on. Moving on to more practical stuff. The next, uh, the next verse in chapter 3, Peter says he's addressing uh, everybody. 
He's addressing finally all of you, he says, everybody he's writing to. So it's not a stretch in the context to say he's writing this to all Christians, all Christians everywhere. Listen to these things. And the first thing that he focuses on is that Christians are to be of one mind, one mind pursuing the same goal. What does it mean to be in one accord, to be in unity, to have one mind? It's about pursuing the same goal. And I would put out the question here this morning, what what is that goal? What's what's the goal of all Christians? Is it it for us to have a bigger church? Is it um, for us to have a more prominent position in the community? City, what, what, whatever, as big as out, as far out as you want to take community? Is, is, that, is that what it's about? And those aren't bad things. It's not a bad thing for our church to grow. It's not bad for, our, for the church to have influence and a place of prominence in a, in a community. But no, that's not the end goal. That's not the one mind that we're seeking. The goal is Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. That's our goal here this morning. The goal is for us, individually and as a body, to be like Jesus Christ. To be like Jesus in how we live and how we treat each other. And how we represent Him to the world. A world that we're seeking to influence with with. Everything we can, seeking to influence all we can to choose Him and to choose to receive His grace and know Him and honor Him and live and receive the full life that we talked about earlier. That's the goal of the church. That's the goal of the church. I occasionally get asked, Pastor, what's, what's our goal here? Well, this is it. To be like Christ. To each other and to the world. Everything else after that is, is just plans and details. And there's nothing wrong with good plans and good details, but the main thing's the primary goal for us individually and as a body to represent and be like Jesus Christ. And so the questions come, how do we demonstrate our Christ-likeness? How do we do this practically? And that's where Peter goes with this letter. How do we do that? How do we demonstrate that to the world and to each other? Let's read verses 8 through 12. Um, and they really don't require a ton of explanation. I don't, I don't have a, a, a ton left to say to you this morning other than having you just look at these uh, a few more verses together and a story or two because these verses don't require, a, it's not mysterious what they're saying. You don't, you don't need a, a master's or a doctoral degree to understand what's said here in verse 8. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Well, I wonder what that means. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate when insults, with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. This is what God has called you to do. Pastor, I don't know what God wants me to do. I don't know what God's will is for my life. 
I've just shared a, a lot of it with you right here. And I can speak authoritatively today by the, by the Holy Spirit's uh, anointing of me and this word. This is God's will for you to do what I've just said. This is what God has called you to do, and he will bless you for it. For the scriptures say, he goes to the Psalms, he says, If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Now, I think I could stop right there, and, um, and, and you can deal with this on your own. You don't need a ton of explanation for it. But I'll just give you some highlights and some thoughts to go with it. The, the, there, there are just uh, two or three I, I want to touch on. When, when Peter talks about loving each other as brothers and sisters... We, we do need to recognize that with, within the church, we don't get to handpick who our brothers and sisters are. You don't get to handpick who your brothers and sisters in Christ are. If you try to do that, you'll end up in trouble. Trust me on that. You just have to, we have to deal with one another as where God puts us in the body of Christ. There's a lady named Heather King who was a writer and a, a commentator for for National Public Radio, and, and uh, she's a recovering alcoholic who came to faith in Christ not too long ago. And she was talking about her first experience in the church. And she came to Christ, and, and she got into the church, and she looked around at everybody, and she said, my God, I don't know if I want to be sober with all these people. I mean, some of these people uh, seem to be kind of boring. Some of them don't think the way I do about politics. Some of them don't seem to have the same taste in music that I do. Uh, some of them just, they're, they're just not like me. And she said, you know, it's, it's tough at times to realize that we look around and the people we're supposed to be worshiping with and making a difference in the world with are, are not necessarily people we would handpick. And it requires a humility of us to accept that. But all of us hopefully recognize today, well, I don't know that we do. This is one place where we sometimes struggle. We don't come to church. We don't get involved in church if we're doing it the way God's called us to do it, to be with people who are like us in the way we want them to be. The main common thing that we have here today is not that everybody sitting around you thinks and acts and does exactly everything like the way you would want them to. It's about this. We come together because of this. We've staked our souls on the fact that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. And that no one gets to God Almighty, the Father, except through Him. And I think sometimes it may be accurate to say we're not sure which is the bigger of the two scandalous things. That God 
loves us or that he loves everyone else. I think it's a pretty crazy thing that God loves me unconditionally. And looking around here, I think it's a pretty big deal that he loves some of you that way too. <laughs> I know some of you. It's a big deal that he loves his church and he loves everyone outside the church that way as well. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Look what he says. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when you're insulted. Don't pay back in the same. Pay back. It's not really ours. Instead, he says, pay back with a blessing. Great book that Max Licato wrote, um, probably my favorite of his. He wrote back in, I think, 96. It's called The Grip of Grace. Highly recommend that. He told a story there about a, um, a guy named Kevin Tunnell. And Kevin Tunnell, uh, at that time, in, in the late 90s, was required to mail a dollar, um, required to, to mail a dollar each week to a family that he probably would have rather have forgotten. This family sued Kevin for $1.5 million, but they settled for $936. Not $936,000, just $936. And that was to be paid a dollar at a time. One dollar a week. The family expected that payment each Friday so that Kevin Tunnell wouldn't forget what had happened on the first day of 1982. That's the day that this family's daughter was killed because Kevin Tunnell was drunk and driving. She was 17 years old. He was 18. And he served a court sentence, but he also spent seven years campaigning against drunk driving, six years more than his sentence required. But he had to keep remembering to send that dollar every Friday. And if, if carried out in full, that was going to mean weekly restitution to last until the year 2000, 18 years. He makes the check out. He was to make the check out each week to the daughter of this family and mail it to her family and then the money was deposited in a scholarship fund. Four times over that stretch of, of, of that endeavor, the family took Kevin to court for failure to comply. And they said it's not the money they were after, but penance. And we may read that and go, well, he deserved that. And if I was in that family's shoes, that actually sounds like maybe a pretty good thing. And in fact, the mother said, we want to receive the check every week on time, and Kevin must understand we are going to pursue this until August of the year 2000, and we will go back to court every month if we have to. Now, I wouldn't begin to, to, uh, to say that that family shouldn't be angry. And shouldn't hurt. 
I think you'd have to be pretty naive to think that it would be uh, normal for them to, to be just okay with things. And it would be kind of naive to say that, that he should have gone unpunished. But I think the question, and the question that Max Lucado asked was this, is 936 payments enough? Not, not for Kevin Tunnel to send, but for that family to demand. And do you think when they received the final payment in August of 2000, do you think they were to just put it, able to put it all behind them? Oh, we got the last payment. Now it's all over. Now we can forget that terrible thing that happened to our daughter. Now it's all okay. No. You know, none of us, none of us are going to get through life without being hurt by somebody. In fact, you may not get through today without being insulted. You probably won't get through this week without somebody hurting your feelings or doing something, something to you that shouldn't be done, that's not right. Just based on what you've already experienced, does revenge, insult for insult, does that work? Oh, I, hey, I know it feels good for a little bit. Trust me, I've got in a zinger or two. And at the moment, yeah, and then did the problem go away? Is the relationship better? Is life better? Peter knows what he's, talk, what he's talking about when he says, don't retaliate with insults. Instead, pay back with a blessing. And that leads into another, another thing I want to highlight here, and, and it's from his quotation of Psalm 34, where he says, search for peace, or some translations say, pursue peace and work to maintain it. That's much different than saying, well, I'll accept peace if it's offered to me. If they do the right thing and come to me groveling on their knees and crawling, seeking peace and forgiveness. No, it says you pursue peace. You offer it. You extend it. The Apostle Paul said it this way. He said, as far as it's possible with, with you, you live at peace with everybody. They may not receive it, but you offer it. Pursue it and work to maintain it. One more thing. Do I really mean that? One more thing? I'm not sure. Close to one more thing. Prayers and answers. I think this is really important for us to hear this morning. Prayers and answers. Did you see what verse 12 says from Psalm 34? The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and His ears are open to their prayers, but the Lord turns His face against those who do evil. That's closely connected and related in the context here to what He said to husbands in verse 7 where he said, Husbands, treat 
your wife as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. Are your prayers being hindered today? Take a look at your life, your relationships. You feel like your prayers are hitting some sort of ceiling? Maybe your first prayer shouldn't be, God, change this person. God, make this person do that. God, give me this. God, give me that. Maybe your first prayer should be, Jesus, make me more like you. I'm going to conclude with these verses. Remember the historical context? Do you remember that from 30 minutes ago or so when I started talking to you? Peter was writing to people that were being persecuted, threatened, their lives threatened, their livelihood threatened for their faith. And he said this, Now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. And then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it is better to suffer for doing good if that is what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. I want to ask them, some of the worship team to come up and join me. Man, when I read those verses, that is so challenging to me. I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but man, I just do not enjoy suffering. I'm, if you tell me something's going to be really difficult and painful, it's it's going to be hard for you, and especially when you talk, you know, real suffering gets beyond physical. It gets into, I mean, where your heart hurts, you know, your spirit hurts. You know what I'm talking about? And if you tell me I'm going to have to do that, I, there's just, humanly, I just kind of want to shrink back from that. And I especially don't want to say, like this passage seems to say, like, bring it on. Lord, I'm willing And especially if you get in trouble, if you get hurt for doing the right thing. I did what I was supposed to do, God. I did what you said to do. And it's the problem still there. This person's still not. There's. In fact, the more I seem to do the right thing, Lord, the more it seems to come against me. Peter says, don't be afraid of that. Don't shrink back from that. Instead, just keep worshiping Christ as Lord of your life. And if people look at your life and somehow say, I don't get it, where does the hope that you have come from? And do you notice this? Do you, do you notice this about the unbelieving people looking at your life and asking about your hope? Not, uh, tell me all about the rules you live by. Not, most people aren't going to come to you with... And just explain every doctrine that you know about your church to me. 
Instead, it's how do you have the hope that you have? The truth is we really, really need the Lord to help us if we're going to live and share our hope. And I want to do that with my life. And, and I, wonder, I wonder if anybody else today needs some help to be able to live this out like we've talked about today. Will you stand with me? Maybe you need some help. Maybe you want to come and pray about it with me. Maybe you want to uh, write it down on your prayer card today. I think the, the truth of the Scripture today is pretty plain spoken, but that sure doesn't mean that it's easy to live out. Are you, are you living in such a way that, that it would give people cause to say, hey, tell me, tell me, what, what do you have that I don't seem to have? Do you want to live that way? Do you feel like you need help to do that? Let's tell the Lord. Let's confess our need to Him today. We need you. We don't have the capability in our own strength or determination to to live the life that you've called us to live. We don't have the ability to do it with each other, let alone with uh, with a sometimes antagonistic and unbelieving world. We need uh, we need you today more than we ever have. to us to to strengthen us to help us to, to guide us to convict us to correct us we need you to challenge us or the temptation that that I have and the strongest is just to kind of relax and be comfortable shrink back from from living out boldly the, the calling that, that you place on our lives. And Lord, I pray that uh, you'd make it real clear to all of us today that, that uh, we've all heard the truth of your word. It's, it's practical. It's straightforward. There's no question today that you're calling every husband and wife to, to treat each other with honor and respect in light of the gift of the grace of God. There's no question that you're calling every Christian here today to, to unify around the cross and around the purpose of being Christ-like. And that you're calling every single one of us to be tender-hearted and compassionate and humble, to not pay back evil for evil. And you're calling every one of us to live our life in such a way that that it conveys hope to others. And you're telling us we need to be ready to share that. And we thank you for the opportunity to, to hear your word today. And we confess our need to you, Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Everyone said...